Um, We're in our second week as we've started this new series where we're going through just the first chapter of 1 Peter, a chapter that's packed full of so much wonderful um, theology, wonderful truths about God. But I want to set it in some of the context of why it's particularly important for us today as we start. Now, one of the challenges that is facing the church in the West at the moment, and it may have escaped your notice, it might not have done, is that there's a breakdown um, with cultural acceptability um, for Christianity. So for about a thousand years, depending on how you measure it, there's been a link between the church and state, which the church has enjoyed, which means that in the West, the church has been culturally credible, culturally normal, um, culturally involved in many institutions. But that is changing. Right now in the UK, it's happening right before our very eyes. And it's difficult to overstate just how significant this is. But of course, one of the ways you'll feel it on the ground is that things which 20 or 30 years ago would have been normal fare in culture, to hold certain views which are normal biblical views, are now no longer the norm in society. Not only are they no longer the norm, but they're often seen as strange or maybe even threatening. Now, one of the um, things that I suppose the church is often told to do to cope with this is to accommodate the culture a lot more. So I wonder if you remember a few years ago, David Cameron, the then Prime Minister, told the church in the UK that it had to get with the program. In other words, get with the cultural program. Stop trying to be different to culture, just become more like culture. The assumption being that if you become more like everyone around you, then people will accept it more. And that's what's wrong. And you often hear sociologists and thinkers saying that's the great problem with the church. It just doesn't, it doesn't understand that things have moved on. We need to get with the program. The problem with that hypothesis is it is completely at odds with what's going on in the world today and is with what has gone on in history. So the places in the world where church is growing most quickly are the places where the church does not conform to the cultural program, but is radically different to it. And actually, if you go back in church history, the first three centuries, which is when the church exploded with growth, it was radically different to the Greco-Roman counterculture around it. It was quite viciously persecuted at times because of that, but it did not grow because it went with the cultural program. No, no, far from it. It stood against many of the cultural problems and was able to talk into them. Let me give you four big ones, and you'll see the applications for today. First one, the church was radically inclusive in the Greco-Roman culture, which was very, very divided. So in the church community, you saw men and women coming together and being treated as equals when that was not the case in Greco-Roman culture. You saw racial mixes, Jew and Gentile coming together. You saw rich and poor coming together. You never saw that in society across the broad. The church, secondly, was a community of forgiveness and reconciliation in a shame and honor culture where blood feuds were common and where vengeance was often meted out on the streets. But the church spoke a message of forgiveness and reconciliation to that. The third one is the church showed a radical generosity to the poor and the outcasts of society. So at a time when young and old were often seen as drain on society, and when those who were poor or those who were crippled and lame were often seen as outcasts to be ostracized and cut off, the church, at great cost, physical and monetary cost, took them in. And the Greco-Roman society couldn't work out why they would do that. And the fourth one was the church was radically sexually pure. Greco-Roman culture makes our sexual liberal movement look like it's only just begun. I mean, it was far more sexually liberal then. And the church stood firmly against that and affirmed heterosexual marriage as being the norm under God 
and was vilified for it. Four areas of radical difference. Now, that was the context in which the church grew, but it was not easy. The church was persecuted for it. Now, Peter is writing into this context. Now, I wonder if you can see why it's so important now. His call is not to accommodate. His call to the Christians is to stand firm. And one of the great questions is, how can you do that? When everything against you in culture is weighing against you, how do you stand firm? And his answer, we'll look down at verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope. Hope is key. Look at verse 13 that ends this section. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you. Peter is writing probably around about A.D. 60 to A.D. 62, the great Nero persecution of the Christians that happened on the back of the great fire of Rome, which took Peter's life in A.D. 64, is just around the corner. Already Christians, as he says in chapter 1, verse 6, are facing all kinds of trials. He writes from Rome, or as he calls it in chapter 5, verse 13, Babylon. So he's right in the midst of the Greco-Roman culture. He's in the capital city. He's dwarfed by everything around him. The church hasn't grown very much yet. It's small and tiny. And he says to them, you have to stand, stand for Christ. And the only way you can do that is if you have a living hope, a hope in front of you that allows you to cope in the midst of the difficulties you're facing now. And of course, that is relevant for us today. Wherever you're coming from this morning, hope is a rare commodity in Western society, but particularly for the church, if we're going to be countercultural, and if we're going to be on the right side of history rather than the wrong side of history, we have to stand firm in what we believe. But we can only do that if we believe that the hope that God has in store for us is better than the now and transforms our lives in the now. So three aspects as we look at these packed but beautiful verses of chapter 1, verses 3 to 5, as we look at this hope, three aspects of hope. A hope that sustains us, secondly, an inheritance that awaits us, and thirdly, the salvation that is coming to us. Three aspects of this hope. Let's look, first of all, at the hope that sustains us. Look at chapter 1, verse 3. Paul, sorry, Peter starts with praise. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us a new birth, that is, a new start, a new beginning, and a beginning that brings about a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Notice the new birth brings us into the hope. It's not caused by the hope, but as we're born again, spiritually speaking, that is, as we trust in Jesus Christ, and we receive a new spiritual birth, a new life shed abroad in our hearts. So that gives us a very, very different perspective on the future, a hope in the now. And notice how Peter calls it a living hope. That is because it's not just some future hope that is so far off that it has no implication on the now. Rather, this hope animates and gives energy and vibrancy to life in the now. It is a living hope. Peter wants the Christians to know that hope is not some vain exercise in escapism. You know, when things are going badly, sometimes you daydream about a better moment. It's not that. It's not escapism. Equally, it's not a kind of daydreaming about something that is never going to come true. No, it is the reality of the future breaking into your life in the now. You know, sometimes we get the phrase that someone is so heavenly-minded they're no earthly good, but Scripture won't have it. Apparently, if you are really 
heavenly-minded. You are the most good in the now. You want to really make a difference in the world now? Be gripped by the future that is to come in Jesus Christ. And that is because the resurrection of Jesus Christ that happened in space, time, and history, attested to by eyewitnesses, attested to by Scripture, the turning point of history itself, breaks into your life in the now and transforms everything about the now. And so with that resurrection power, the life of God and the soul of man by the Spirit, empowering you and changing you now, if you have that, it radically changes you. You're never the same again. In Marvel's end-of-era film, Avengers Endgame, don't worry, I'm not going to give you spoilers if you're waiting for it to come out on um, DVD or whatever. Arguably, the great subplot of the film is actually this great crisis of the West, which is the loss of hope. So what it does brilliantly is it takes its time in the film to really explore what happens when hope is gone. And you see these superheroes struggling to come to terms with life when they have no hope. So Captain America, who's always trying to put a spin on things and trying to be the positive one is a grief counselor and he memorably says he says I keep telling everybody else to move on but not us everyone else moves on but not us you see Thor rather comically but actually quite tragically as well turns to alcohol and grows about 20 stone and becomes a recluse in some far corner of the world you see um Black Widow, Natasha Romanov, throwing herself into her work, doing what she's always done because she fears that if she stops, life will be too painful for her. And then finally, most tragically of all, you see Clint Barton, Hawkeye, who's lost his whole family, turning to bitter and angry revenge. And the turning point of that first part of the film is when Black Widow, who's long-term friends with Hawkeye, catches up with him, and she tells him that there might be a way, some kind of hope to undo everything that's been done. And he memorably turns to her and says, don't give me hope. And she says, I'm sorry, I couldn't have given it to you sooner. And then the film changes. Hope. It's all about hope. Everything changes with hope. Hope is just so foundational to life. The opposite of hope? Despair. What is it like when you look to the future and you can't see any good? You can only see darkness. There is no light at the end of the tunnel. How do you do life then? You either escape and drown your sorrows as Thor does. You pretend and try and give it some kind of Pollyanna optimism like Captain America that you don't really believe. You turn to bitterness and depression like Hawkeye. Or you just plow yourself into the now, never thinking about the future, which is what so many people do. What's the alternative? Hope, that most precious of commodities. With hope, everything changes. You know this, we know this from life. Think of the athlete who will endure great pain and hardship, great sacrifice in training. Why? For the hope of future glory. Think of the soldier who will go to the front line and experience great difficulty, great pain and separation from family and great danger. Why? Because of the hope of victory. Think of those who fight with cancer and will go through grueling treatment. Why? Because of the hope of a cure. My friends, that is with things which are uncertain. And yet people go through the mill. But what would it be like if you had a certain hope? If that broke into your life in the now, such that it was vibrant and alive in your life now, a living hope, what difference would that make? Do you see the point Peter's making? You might face, verse 6, all kinds of trials, as his original readers were maligned by the culture around them. But he says, if you have hope, you can stand up to it. You can maintain grace under fire. 
You can be continually distinctive even when people mock you for it. Even when everyone says, look around, look at the culture, we're on the wrong side of it, you'll say, Jesus Christ is true, he is faithful, the hope is sure, it's a living hope for me now, I won't give in. I'll be gracious and prayerful, I'll contend, I'll stand. It's a living hope. Well, let's think then, if that's a living hope, why that hope is so glorious, what's so wonderful about it. Let's look at the second point, the inheritance that awaits us. Look at verse 4. Into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. That word inheritance in Scripture has a really rich meaning to it. That's why we had the reading from Deuteronomy chapter 4, because in the Old Testament, time and time again, the language of inheritance was used for the promised land, the land of Canaan, the land that was given by God to his people as the great inheritance. So Deuteronomy 4 verse 38, to bring you into their land, to give it to you for your inheritance as it is today, and then it goes on to say in verse 39, and for all time. Because of course, that future promise for Israel of the promised land wasn't what it was all about. It was a shadow, a foreshadowing of the future when God will give to all his people, not just a land. No, the inheritance for us, if we trust in Christ, is the whole world. As Jesus says in the Beatitudes, the meek shall inherit the earth. That's not just some poetic phrase. That's true. Those who trust in Christ, the benefit, the blessing, the future glory that awaits us is this earth, transformed, renewed, glorified, everything made new. There's a lot of wrong thinking about this. People sometimes think that heaven is some willow-in-the-wisp ethereal existence. No, heaven in the Bible is a new creation, this world made new, everything that's good about it, family, friends, fun, fame and fortune, all redeemed, everything that's good, nothing that's bad. Think about the most glorious elements of this world. Now, if you can, try and take out and purify from those memories or thoughts of this world everything that's bad, so you're left with just the pure goodness of what this world is. Now, imagine that for one day in eternity. Now, imagine that that one day it's just a precursor to a better day because every day after is only better. And imagine that you never worry that it will end. You never worry that it will go away. You know, loss is one of the tragic features of life, this side of heaven, of the new creation. We find loss hugely difficult as human beings, don't we? I get upset when I lose my jumper because moths have chewed a hole in it and eventually I can't repair it anymore. My repairs are terrible, by the way, but... You know, there we go. But as after I've repaired it, and when my wife finally looks at it and she says, you can't wear that anymore, I get quite upset. I like my jumpers. That's just a jumper. Things that are more significant, the loss hurts more, doesn't it? The loss of a memory, the loss of health and vitality as you get older, the loss of your looks, the loss of a loved one, those things start to hurt. That's why we hate those words, perish, spoil, fade in verse 4. But you see this inheritance, this new creation? It can never perish. It will never spoil. It will never fade. In other words, the new creation is a world of no loss. There is no loss in the new creation. How wonderful would it be if you lived in a world where you never feared loss, where you could never lose anything, where nothing could be taken away from you anymore? where it would just be an endless future spanning out in front of you of glory and perfection 
where things never faded, never spoiled. What would that be like? You say, that's just a dream. It's not a dream. It's as sure as the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's the world he's bringing in. It's the future hope for those who trust in him. 67 years ago, the missionary Jim Elliott um, and four Christian men with him decided to take the gospel to an indigenous people in Ecuador who were very, very hard to reach called the Huari tribe. He wrote in his diary a few months before he went there, famous words. He wrote, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He was aware of the risks of what he was going to do. He was aware that as he went there, he may receive a violent welcome. They flew over with a plane for several weeks trying to form some kind of contact with this tribe. They seemed to be getting some positive signals. They had some initial interactions with one or two members of the tribe coming to them. Eventually, the day came when with much prayer and much support behind them, the five men decided they were going to land their plane and they were going to go in and try and greet the tribal elders one-on-one. As they waded across the river to go and see them, they were greeted by spears and all five of them were killed. Jim Elliott's wife, Elizabeth Elliott, then did the most remarkable thing. She returned to that tribe. She took the gospel of forgiveness and reconciliation to them. Many of them gave their lives to the Lord and they experienced forgiveness firsthand. What do you make of a life like that? A tragic waste? Remember the words of Jim Elliot. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Amazing, isn't it? And yet here today in our culture, we so often fear speaking up for Christ, particularly amongst the younger generation. I was reading a report by the Barna Group in the US that said 96% of people today are aware that part of my faith is being a witness about Jesus, but with the younger generation, 47% say it's wrong to share one's faith with someone from a different faith. That's twice as high as any other group. In other words, they know they should be sharing their faith and standing tall for Christ, but they don't want to do it. And why? Well, their big fear is that if someone disagrees with them, then they will receive judgment from that person. In other words, popularity and approval is so important to people today that when they fear, just the fear, because actually the flip side of it is when you see the results of people who are told the gospel, they often don't mind too much. Only one out of five people say that it's a negative experience. Four out of five people say it's fine and they would expect it from Christians. So there's mostly a fear on the Christian side of things. What's the remedy to that? Hope. If you have a future hope, a glorious future hope, you can say, yeah, it might be costly. It might be that in my office, when I don't go along with the morally lax subculture, that I'll be ostracized from my friendship group. But that's okay, I've got a future hope. You can say, yeah, one in five people that I share my faith with might give me a cold shoulder. I mean, that's about the worst that's gonna happen in today's day and age. And that might be a bit painful for me because I don't like that. But that's okay, I've got a hope. When you stand up for some of the controversial ethical issues of today, like the beginning of life or the end of life, yes, of course you know that someone will probably do a hashtag and on your Twitter account and say how bigoted and how narrow-minded. But you can say, that's okay. I've got a future hope. You do it graciously. You do it humbly. You do it with compassion, of course. But don't think that doing it graciously and humbly with compassion is going to exonerate you amongst criticism. Standing for Christ can only happen if you've got hope. But if you have that hope, living hope in the now, it can make a huge difference. You might have to forego wealth now because you give it away sacrificially for the gospel. You've got eternal riches to come. 
you might miss out on promotion now because you're known as a Christian in the office. You've got eternal glory to come. Hope. One of the important things about hope is that it differs from mere optimism because hope must have a reasonable expectation of fulfillment. I wonder if you're following me so far, if you're wondering, this sounds glorious, I just wish it were true. How can I know it is true? Well, look down at how Peter tries to reassure us at the end of verse 4 and verse 5. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Three reasons he gives us here that we can be confident in this hope as we look thirdly at the point, the salvation that is coming to us. First of all, notice at the end of verse 4, this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. The word for keeping there is a kind of security guard, watching over something. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. And who is keeping it? God. In other words, God is the one who's guarding this. You know when you have something very precious, you give it to the best possible safekeeping. We obviously know recently about the Hatton Garden robberies, but people used to keep the things there. And I remember when I was talking to my wife, Rebecca, about it, we both asked the question, well, what's the insurance policy for something like that? There was no insurance policy for it because keeping it in the vaults in Hatton Garden was seen so safe that it needed no insurance policy. Unfortunately, that didn't work out. But if God is the one keeping something for you, you don't need an insurance policy. God is the insurance policy. He is keeping the inheritance for you. You say, will it really happen? Every Christian goes through this doubt. Don't think you're abnormal. If you're a Christian, you're thinking, is it really true? Is heaven really going to be real? It sounds too good to be true. Everyone thinks like that. But when you doubt it, what do you look at? You look at the end of verse 4. God is keeping it. He's the insurance policy. And you know what? He's got a good track record. His word has never been broken. None of his promises have ever come untrue. Everything he said he has done, he has done, and that's never going to change. He is utterly good. He is utterly faithful. He is utterly wise. He is utterly strong. He will keep your future so you can be confident. But not only that, not only is the future kept in heaven for you, but look at verse 5. You who through faith are shielded. In other words, God is keeping your future and he's keeping you because here's how it works. You think, well, I know the future's secure, but the problem is, what about me? Because I don't know about you, but I look at my life track record and I sometimes think I rise and fall, I wax and wane. One day is good, one day is not so good. Have I got any guarantee that I'm going to get to the future? Oh, there might be a future and God's keeping that, praise the Lord. But am I going to get there? I mean, 20, 30, 40, 50 years through the ups and downs of life, am I going to get there? Look at the security you have. Verse 5, you through faith are shielded by God's power. Shielded there is the picture of a Roman garrison, a legion being deployed to protect a town. In other words, it's saying God is deploying all of his forces to protect you. To protect you from the things that could trip you up. Other people, the world, the flesh, and the devil, dare I say yourself, God is deploying all of his energies, all of his resources to keep you. So the future is kept for you, and you are kept for the future. Do you see the security of the believer? Christian, why are you worried? <laughs> of course you have to persevere yourself, but if you get this, you will persevere. Have you had a terrible week? Do you feel like you've barely got to the end of the week? You're clinging on by your fingernails. 
Do you feel at the moment that your prayer life is dry? You're actually saying, I'm not even sure when I pray if anything happens. When you read your Bible at the moment, does it feel a bit like you're just reading empty words and you're thinking, I'm told this is real, but it doesn't feel very real? And you're worried, you're saying, am I really a Christian? My friend, God is keeping you. God will keep you. God always keeps his own. Jesus says, my sheep know my voice. No one can snatch them from my hand. Those are powerful hands. Don't fear. God will keep you. So he keeps the future for us. He keeps you for the future. And lastly, at the end of verse 5, until the coming of the salvation, that is ready to be revealed in the last time. That word ready means everything is prepared. It's like the wedding banquet is laid. Everything is done. He's accomplished it all. In other words, you say, well, it just seems to be taking a long time. I mean, 2,000 years ago, Peter wrote this, and Jesus hasn't come back yet. It seems to be taking a long time. Are you sure it's coming? God says, it's ready, my friend. It's coming sooner than you expect. It'll be there. You'll be kept for it. It'll be kept for you. It's coming soon. You'll be ready. We so often worry about the future and the hope, but the more certain the hope, the more it impacts the now. And finally, as you look at this and you say, well, how can I be sure? How can I be sure that these words are really true? You can be sure because of what God has given to guarantee them. You see, Jesus Christ could have stayed in heaven. He could have been kept in heaven, nice and safe, nice and secure in eternity, enjoying the presence with his Father, but he didn't stay there, did he? He came down. He wasn't kept. He became vulnerable and exposed so that he could keep you. He became vulnerable, even going to a cross, to be killed, to be scorned, so that you could know for surety, for certainty, that he will keep you. Jesus could have commanded a legion of angels to guard him, to get him down from the cross, couldn't he? As the mockers said, if you're the son of God, come down from the cross. He could have done that, but he didn't. Instead, it's because he stayed on the cross that now he commands a legion of angels for you. He says, keep you, and he will keep you. Jesus had every opportunity on the cross to cry out to his Father for salvation, but he chose to forgo that. Why? Because he forewent his salvation, so he secured your salvation. So are you worried about the future? Are you worried if you're going to get there? Do you not see Jesus has died for you to give you absolutely every assurance and certainty? So now, if I can put it like this, you are immortal until God decides that he's got nothing more for you to do this side of the new creation. You are immortal. How reassuring that would have been. How, what a game changer that would have been for the early Christians when the Nero persecution broke out after the great fire of Rome in AD 64, just a couple of years later, and they reread these words, and they said, we can still trust God, even though everything is going chaotic around us, God is going to keep us. And he did. Let me close with two words of application. First of all, please notice that the security of trusting in Christ does not happen, and you please get this, does not happen in spite of circumstances to the contrary. It happens in, midst, in the midst of circumstances to the contrary. In other words, Christians often think, if God is going to keep me, he will take me out of difficult circumstances. That is not what happens here. He protects you in the midst of it. I know you'd like it the other way around. It doesn't work like that. Verse 6, 
In all this, you greatly rejoice. In all this, you rejoice in the hope, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. In other words, Peter is writing to people who are suffering. And he's not saying that if you trust in God, he will give you a glorious life where everything will go well and you'll have health, wealth, and prosperity and it'll all be fantastic. He does not say that. He says the proof of God keeping you is you will continue to suffer now, but he will keep you going in the midst of suffering. Please understand this. God has not promised to take you out of your suffering. Sometimes he does that. He's not promised it though, but he has promised to strengthen you with a living hope in the midst of suffering. I don't know what you're going through right now, but please know this. God will keep you. Whatever you're going through, God will keep you. He's got a great track record of it. Heaven is kept for you. You are kept for heaven. The future is coming soon, so hold on, hold on. And lastly, how do you hold on? Well, you hold on by verse 6, rejoicing. You know, hope is one of those things that it's best kept by being used. Hope is best kept by being used. And you use hope by rejoicing in it. Sometimes we keep things by putting them away on a shelf and forgetting them about them. That's not how you keep hope. Hope is not something you have on the shelf and you never you know, get down. Hope is something you carry around in your pocket, closest to you. You live with every moment. You're constantly pulling it off the shelf and looking at it and reading it. You're constantly going back to it and you're rejoicing in it. If hope grips your heart and you're enjoying it, you're rejoicing in it, then it starts to be a vibrant reality in your life. It starts to change things about you. As I close, I remember when I first became a Christian, I went along to a church where I didn't really know many people there, and I was very drawn to an elderly couple called Harold and Sybil Puttock. They've gone to glory now. They were in their 90s. I was a young rugby player, student at university, but there was something about them that was just infectious. They'd suffered a lot in their lives, but spend five minutes with them, and everything else in life just seemed to come into perspective. Have you ever met believers like that? And you know what I realized was the difference with them in the end? They rejoiced in hope. That smile wasn't a fake smile. It was the genuine joy of the hope that was to come, a hope they enjoy now with Christ face to face, a hope that is yours if you stand firm. So verse 13, therefore, with minds are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, hope is so powerful. Sometimes it seems so fragile. And yet, Lord God, nothing can stop it. We pray that the future hope of this glorious inheritance would so break into our present realities that it would be a living hope for us. Reassure us that this future hope is guaranteed, is certain, is a hope that will not perish, spoil, or fade, that is kept in heaven for us, and we are kept for it, and this salvation is coming soon. Would that change us in the now and help us to live these countercultural lives that radically change the Greco-Roman world over the first three centuries and will radically change our world if we live it out in the now? We pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen.